Our salvation is not yet complete, but one day we will stand before Jesus, and that is our final salvation. That is when we are made complete in Him. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to Part 6 of Christ, the Center of All History, an 11-part series from Pastor Paul Twiss. Today, Pastor Paul will continue from the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. In yesterday's Part 5, Pastor Paul had us focusing on Matthew's depiction of, quote, Jesus Christ as a greater Moses. That comparison would certainly get a Jewish reaction, and should get ours as well. As wonderfully as Moses followed his heavenly Father to rescue the Jews from Egyptian bondage, not long after their miraculous Red Sea crossing, they fell back into bondage. Pastor Paul observed this, quote, They rejected God's good law, they turned their backs on his good commands, and enslaved themselves again to sin, end quote. Here's part six of Christ, the center of all history. What's fascinating as you read the numbers narrative in particular is that Moses portrays the people in that book in the likeness of their enslavement in Egypt. They're not in Egypt anymore. They've been set free from that. And yet the same things become true of them in the wilderness as was true of them in Egypt. He's showing them they're right back where they were before, by their own choice now. They're returning to their sin. They're not responding in gratitude. As Jesus is the greater, better, more glorified Moses, the imperative that comes to us this morning is that we would live as those who have been set free from sin. Consider who you once were and don't be that person. But according to the grace afforded to you in the gospel, fight against sin in your life and run towards the word of God and do all that you can to get your life under his word. Do everything that you can to conform your life to God's word as a way of showing your gratitude that Jesus is our Moses who sets us free from bondage and gives us a life-giving law. That's the first correspondence, the first resonant frequency that Matthew presents to us. The second one is with David, and this one is a little bit trickier to trace. Matthew goes on in verse 14, he rose, Joseph, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. I've spoken to you a number of times in the last few weeks about seeing the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament. And every time we see a New Testament quotation in an Old Testament text, we understand we've got some study to do. We have to ask why that author saw fit to use that text. What's the theological point that he wants to make. 
Scholars commonly agree that this particular New Testament use of the Old Testament is the most difficult in all of the Bible. Are you encouraged? It is the most difficult New Testament use of the Old Testament to understand in all of Scripture. So if we can understand this one, we've become professionals at this. I need for your attention to be here. If you've been asleep thus far this morning, now's the time to wake up. The fact that the Word of God is difficult needs no apologies. The Word of God is wonderful. It is simple enough that a child could read it and understand eternal truths. At the same time, it is complex and profound enough that you and I could spend the next thousand years considering it and have not reached its depths. Isn't that wonderful? So we don't shy away from difficult texts, but we give them all of our attention so as to honor the Lord, and that would include this quotation from Hosea here. The fact that Hosea is doing something out of the ordinary or I should say the fact that Matthew is, is made plain to us by simply considering that had Matthew wanted to talk more about the Exodus, presumably he would have gone back to the book of Exodus. Just consider that first observation as an entry point into this problem. Matthew introduces us to Jesus as the greater Moses. He's now moving on to a second correspondence. If Matthew had wanted to talk more about the Exodus event alone, where would he have gone in the Old Testament to do that but the book of Exodus? And yet he doesn't. What he does is he goes to Hosea as a way of talking about the Exodus. So something more is going on just by that first initial observation. Turn with me back to Hosea. We read chapter 11 this morning. Go a little bit further back to chapter 3. I'll give you the thesis statement up front and then we'll try to see it. The reason Matthew goes back to the Exodus event by way of Hosea is because he wants to present Jesus as the greater David who will lead us home. That's why Matthew does this. Now, how do I show that? When you get to the book of Hosea, the prophet is speaking all about God's love. The prophet Hosea speaks extensively about God's love, God's love in judgment and God's love in salvation. One of the defining features of Hosea's prophecy is its Davidic element. Hosea labors on David in his prophecies of judgment and salvation. Look with me just by way of example at chapter 3. Verse 3, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Verse 4, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. That's just one example of many within the book of Hosea where the prophet projects forward 
with an oracle of salvation, final salvation, and does so by invoking the reality of David. Now think just a little bit about that prophecy. He cannot be referring to the first David. Hosea gives these prophecies long after the historical reign of David the man. He's finished. Hosea then comes along, projects forward, and says there is coming a day of salvation for God's people Israel when they will seek David. So we understand the Davidic element to Hosea's theology is one that speaks inherently of a second David, a David-like figure who's coming on the horizon of salvation history. That is everywhere in Hosea. Now look at chapter 11. This is where Matthew is quoting from. Follow the logic of Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. There's the Matthew quotation. Out of Egypt, I called my son, speaking about the Exodus, the salvation that the people experience being led out of Egypt. But, verse 2, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Hosea is reciting history now and he's saying God saved his people out of love for them. His son, Israel. But when he saved them, they didn't respond to him with obedience, but they sacrificed to idols. Therefore, verse 5, they won't return to the land of Egypt. They're not going back to the place from which he drew them, but... They are going to Assyria. Assyria shall be their king. Hosea is at that point leaning forward towards the exile. The exodus is when they were drawn out of Egypt. They didn't obey in the land. So God says now there's an exile on the horizon. You're going to be taken away. The northern kingdom was taken away at the hands of the Assyrians and the southern at the hands of the Babylonians. Hosea speaks of that, but it's not done there. Verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? The love of God is put on display even here, all the way through Hosea. We see the love of God at work in judgment and salvation, and here in chapter 11, the logic is I saved you from Egypt as an act of my love. You didn't respond to it. You worshipped the Baals and the idols. So now you're going into exile. But I won't be done with you finally because my love for you is too great. How can I give you up, says God? So notice verse 11. He projects as far forward as he can and he says, they shall come trembling. Very similar language to Hosea 3. They shall come in fear. Chapter 11, they shall come trembling. He's projecting beyond the exile now and saying one day there will be a final salvation. And we're informed not by Hosea 11, it doesn't make it explicit here, but Hosea 3, that the means by which that final salvation shall be effected is through a second David. They won't lead themselves from exile. They won't lead themselves out of exile. So where is it going to come from? Where's this saving act coming from? The exodus 
had as its head Moses, the exile. The return, the final eschatological return from exile comes by way of a second David. And so Matthew, as he presents to us Jesus, is able to say, out of Egypt I've called my son, it has been fulfilled in this child, because he is drawing on the whole theology of Hosea. And he understands within Hosea's theology how Christ is to function as a second, greater, more glorious David who will lead his people home. Now, I want you to think very carefully about this. The New Testament typically speaks of salvation according to three different categories. In the New Testament, sometimes we read of salvation as a past act in the believer's life. That tends to be how you and I speak of it today. You might ask somebody, how were you saved? We're referring to past salvation, that moment when God gave you eyes of faith to see Christ for who he is. That's one way the New Testament speaks of salvation. The New Testament also speaks of salvation in terms of an ongoing process. Without denying the moment of justification, the New Testament sometimes talks about the fact that we are being saved. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We tend to use the word sanctification when we refer to that kind of ongoing process. It doesn't deny the reality of a historical transaction wherein your sins were forgiven and righteousness was bestowed, but it acknowledges that God still has work to do in you. And sometimes the New Testament uses the word salvation for that process. The third way in which sometimes the New Testament talks about salvation is to refer to our final glorification with Christ. Our salvation is not yet complete, but one day we will stand before Jesus, and that is our final salvation. That is when we are made complete in him. We tend to think the least about this third category. As you meditate upon the gospel and God's work in your life, most likely you think the least about final salvation. You think a lot about past salvation and ongoing sanctification. The problem with that is that the Bible regularly commends to us the meditation of final salvation as the means to elicit present obedience. This is a logic that is all the way through scripture. How do I obey God's word today? I don't feel excited towards God. I feel overwhelmed by my circumstances. How do I live a life that honors him? One way in which the Bible commends us to obedience in the present is by setting forth before us the reality of our final salvation. The scriptures teach us to be much in the thoughts of final salvation. Because it has a funny way of affecting our behavior in the present. And we affirm this logic all the time in our earthly existence. In many other realms, we adhere to this logic. Recently, 
As a family, we took a trip to Zion National Park. We went just after Thanksgiving. So it was right at the tail end of the fall season, right as they began their winter season. So as we went to the park, one of the things we were eager to do was the Narrows. Heard a lot about it, seen lots of fun photos, and we wanted to, to do this wading through the riverbed. At times, the water's kind of up to here, or if you're one of my kids, more like here. And we wanted to do this. And so we made a plan, one of our days in Zion, that we would do the Narrows. And I was mindful to prepare my children as much as I could mentally for what was about to happen. And so I said to them over and over again, this is going to be really hard. Yeah, we know that. I said, no, it's going to be really hard. I said, this is going to be cold. You know that. And they said, yeah, we know that. And I said, look, when we get there, I want you to be brave. I want you to do this. If you say that you're in, you've got to be brave. And when we do it, there's no complaining. And if I ask you to do something, you have to do it. Do you understand? Yeah, we got it, Dad. And I kept doing this to the point where they said, Dad, can you stop telling us to be brave? So we get there and we put the, the dry suits on and we get into that riverbed. I did not anticipate how bitterly cold that water would be. <laughs> it shocked me and I had to be brave. It was, it was bitterly cold. And because it's the narrows, you've got these rock faces either side of you and the sun is setting because it's in the afternoon. There's no sunlight in there. It's completely in shade. So every so often, one of us would stumble, one of the kids would trip, and their hand goes in, and now their hand's numb. It is bitterly cold. And I'm fearful, though I didn't mention this to them, that one of them would trip and go under, and the water would be down into the suit, and that would be the end of it. So I'm watching out for them, and sure enough, it becomes difficult for them to keep on their happy faces. It becomes difficult for them not to complain as I ask them to do things, it becomes increasingly more difficult for them to obey. Now, here's what I noticed. I didn't mention it to them at the time, but I noticed what happened. We got about four miles in, wading through this water. And we realized, you can congratulate them afterwards, they were <laughs> troopers. We got about four miles in, and we realized we've got to turn around now if we're going to get the last bus out of the park. So we stopped there, and I said, okay, guys, we're done. We're going to turn around and head home. Immediately, their spirits picked up. Immediately, they were able to smile. They were able to do what I asked of them. They were able to be very positive about the whole thing. The temperature of the water had not changed one degree. There was not one extra ounce of sunlight in that riverbed. Nothing had changed about their circumstances. But now they're obeying. Now they're complying. Now they're happy. Why? Because they see that they're headed home. They know that around this corner and around that corner, that's where the bus is. And then they get on the bus and they go back and get a warm shower. They knew what was ahead of them. And I didn't mention anything, but it was so interesting to observe how their spirits changed when you bring the final finish line into view. It changes everything. 
And the Bible commends us to think according to that logic as it relates to our earthly Christian life. If we would only be disciplined to meditate upon our final salvation, which is only possible because Jesus is the true and better David and he will lead us home. Oh, how much better our lives would honor the Lord in the struggles of life in a broken world. Matthew presents to us Jesus as our Moses who set us free from bondage and who gives us a life-giving law. He shows us Jesus as our David who will most certainly lead us home. And as we see our Savior in these likenesses, we worship him and we obey with thankful hearts. Let's pray. To close. Father, we are thankful this morning for Jesus having come as a greater Moses and a greater David, as a more glorious Moses and a more glorious David, as our Moses and our David. As we zoom out and take Matthew's gospel into view, we see that Jesus comes to set the captives free. He destroys the cords of bondage to sin, never to be refastened upon us. He sets us free and he gives to us teaching for our good. As we think upon Jesus as the greater Moses, Father, may we be faithful to not return to the life from which we have been saved but to strive according to your grace to live lives of obedience to your word. Father, as we see Jesus as the greater David, through this use of Hosea, he invokes this theology of God's love that will return his people from exile. How? Through David. Their deliverance from exile will come through David. We see the implications for our lives. Jesus is the greater, more glorious king, and he will lead us home to final salvation. Train our hearts to think upon our final salvation, that we would glory in it, that we would rejoice in it, that we would live our lives according to it. Father, may we be found as those who meditate often, upon the reality of standing before Christ very soon without sin, made complete in him to worship him forever. And I pray it would bear fruit in our lives today. We commit ourselves to you, knowing just how much we need your grace to supply our needs. We ask it all in the name of Christ. Amen. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul today showed us that a person's salvation has three categories. First, the moment when God gives us eyes to see and believe. Second, the growing process as we are, quote, being saved. And then category three is when we stand before Jesus, that is, our final salvation. We Christians need to fix our minds upon that scene. 
If you're being led to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, to open your eyes to Him and repent, you will begin that wonderful trip that ends when you stand with Him in glory. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you've been encouraged by this program, we invite you to help support it by making a financial gift. Your gift will help bring this life-changing Bible-based message to thousands of listeners. To make your gift of any size, go to TimelessTruthToday.org and on the homepage, click Donate. Join us tomorrow, Part 7, as we continue in our series, Christ, the Center of All History. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.